Hi, it's Greg Middleton, and you're listening to Cinepod at the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back, Ben. It's been a minute. Like we didn't, uh, we had a couple weeks there where we didn't do this. We had a special episode, and uh, now we're back. We're back doing our host wraps. It's that time. Yeah, and we have a, a very exciting interview today with Greg Middleton, who we had on recently in a panel of lots of DPs. That's right. And we got into most of his background then. We didn't go into as much of his background on this, because since that interview, a little TV show that he worked on for Disney Plus called Moon Knight dropped. And uh, got to talk to him about Moon Knight. Oh, my God. What a cool show. Nice. Which just had its uh, season finale. Yeah. Just last week had its big season finale. And uh, but I'm just really impressed that like the MCU got through all of the really conventional stuff that they needed to get through with all the Avengers. And and now they're kind of they're letting the stories be a little weird and they're taking characters like Moon Knight that we don't know as much and they're taking them very seriously, but they don't all feel like a, a superhero guy in a cape going around and fighting crime. Uh, I'm excited because this means there's a possibility, very real possibility of Howard the Duck 2. Oh, that's been going on for a while. I mean, Howard the Duck was in the first Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, very small cameo. Very, very but small. But people yeah. were very excited about the, the Howard the Duck cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy. And if anyone could make Howard the Duck sing, I imagine it would be James Gunn. Uh, yes, I got to imagine the Kevin Feige, James Gunn combination would make Howard the Duck, you know, a high water point for our days and times. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, the the Greg Middleton interview is fascinating. His His approach to the work and some of the challenges that they faced because Moon Knight is a sprawling epic that takes place on multiple continents and all all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Different it has, planes of existence. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And also probably my favorite part of my conversation with him is dealing with the way they handled multiple reflections because reflections play a big part of the show. Yeah. And so the question is, do you only have reflections come up when they're important or do you have reflections all the time? And that was something before I even knew that reflections were a big deal as I was watching the show. I kept noticing like, wow, like just the filmmaker and me, they would walk into a room and I'm like, ooh, the, every surface is reflective. That, that's got to be a headache for somebody. I was on high alert for reflections just because uh, I, I have shot in reflective rooms and had concerns uh, thereof. But speaking of zany, wacky, out-of-the-box Marvel projects, let's get into our close focus, which is the big blockbuster news. Man, theatrical's back. Theatrical roars back. Remember all the times over the last two years where we've been like, are people ever going to go back to movie theaters? Is this going to leave a stain on theatrical? And Surprise! Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nope, it's back. There was a lot of money spent at uh, the new Doctor Strange this weekend. Yeah, what was the final total? Oh my God, it was more than 180 million. So it was a lot. It was a, a lot of money. I think they said the weekend was like 450 million or something like that. So clearly people are back. Clearly they're going to theaters. Clearly the entire cinema experience is not over. COVID couldn't stamp it out completely. And here it is. It's back. Congratulations. The pandemic is completely over. Yay. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh wait, it's not. Oh jeez. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. There's, my producer's saying something in the headset right now. No, no oh. it turns out not. No, it's not over yet. Yeah, yeah. There's still a pandemic. Anyway, well, uh, going to movie theaters, uh, I guess, is safe-ish, and uh, you know, nothing could make me happier. Then Doctor Strange being a big movie, even though I have not seen it yet. I'm, I'm going to try and see it this week because it is directed by uh, one of my heroes in life, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, director of Darkman, Evil Dead 2, The Quick and the Dead. So many amazing movies. And then obviously known to another generation for his three Spider-Man movies, two of which are great and one of which is super weird. But uh, I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen uh, Doctor Strange yet? I have not. It's uh, I'm, I'm not rushing out to see it. I want to see uh, another movie, I think, again in the theater before I see anything else. And that is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, I saw it. You know, you should see them both at the same at like, Well, you can't see them at the same time, but you should see them because <laughs> they're both multiverse movies. That's right. So, yeah. I think that multiverse maybe is going to be the cliche of this year of movies. I feel like, you know, ever since Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, we've had lots of multiverse related storytelling. Agreed. And then the latest Spider-Man movie. And it seems like it's definitely now reached like flavor of the moment. I I think it's a little bit of a cop out because, of course, you can do anything with that. But everything everywhere all at once. I loved it. I thought it was great. And I got to say that even though it may not be a perfect movie, it's definitely wasn't something I had seen before. And for that reason, it's great. And I want to see it again. I have like no complaints about everything everywhere all at once. Really enjoyed it. Thought the casting was great and it was fun to see uh, Kihu Kwan, who played short round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh, And from the Goonies. Yeah, yeah, he's great. It's so great to see him back. He's I, I was like, who is that actor? He's so amazing. How do I not know who that is? And I looked him up. I'm like, oh, my God, that's that guy. It's that guy. But yeah, uh, the Multiverse of Madness, I hear, and maybe hopefully I'll see it this week and I'll report back next week at Host Raps, but I hear that Sam Raimi goes full Sam Raimi, which if I have a complaint about his Spider-Man movies, which I did like, it's that they felt restrained. They felt like he wasn't going full Sam Raimi. So the Sam Raimi I love the most, and I've talked on this show about his second movie that no one ever talks about called Crime Wave. I love it when Sam Raimi just lets loose because nobody uses the screen the way that he does. He's just such a -a one-of-a-kind filmmaker. And, you know, somebody, again, who was one of my heroes as I, you know, was going to film school and, and starting out. I'll even see shots in the original shorts that I did. Like I did this short on Super 8 when I was in film school and I'm like, it's not much. You wouldn't look at it and go, that's a Sam Raimi shot. But it was my very, very humble attempt to emulate the, the way he would have moved a camera in that moment. You know, I do want to throw one other thing out there. One little tidbit of information, you know, regarding the return of the theater. The reason I also bring up everything everywhere all at once is that it started off on 10 screens. Started off on 10 screens. Do you know how many screens it's on now? I, I'm not even going to guess. It hit a peak of 2,133 screens. It's now back down to 1542. But that is an incredible rise. That's an incredible rise o- over the weeks. And it basically went up and up and up and then exploded. And now, you know, Doctor Strange has come out. So so it lost some, some ground in the theaters, but still doing really, really well. People are going back to the movies, not just for the big blockbuster, but of course, that's what what pays the bills and allows studios to make so many other things. But little movies like uh, Everything Everywhere also raking it in. They're up to 41 million now, which has got to be a huge success. I heard that after like three weekends, it was already the fourth, you know, the highest grossing movie A24 had ever made. And now at 41 million, it's got to be a runaway success. 
And I, I got to say, man, A24 is just killing it. I'm loving uh, what A24 is doing. They're sort of making these art house movies that I don't know if it's that they're marketing them better than a lot of people have figured out how to market art house films. Because I feel like art house movies, uh, and I don't have a graph or, or analytics to back up what I'm about to say. So this is just purely my opinion. But around the time, the, around the time that we had the uh, financial recession in 2008, Art House just took a major hit. And it's not that there weren't well-known art house movies since 2008, but I feel like A24 is making movies like Everything Everywhere all at once and also movies like X, which have a kind of mainstream or at least a niche appeal that's a big niche in bringing people back in. So, you know, is it surprising that a new MCU movie is doing well? It's not that surprising. What's surprising is that people are going back to the theaters. Pleasantly surprising. I'm happy people are going back to the theaters. I'm happy that hopefully uh, the pandemic is just uh, like people keep saying. It's now it's just an endemic. And so it's probably going to be like flu. And we're all going to have to get a COVID shot every year if we feel like it. And some people are going to explain to me that they never get COVID. And I'm going to roll my eyes. But <laughs> um, but it, it does mean like if that's true, and I hope it is. At least for the time being, we can we can go back to the theaters. And I'm just glad people want to go back to the theaters because, again, we've been speculating for two years now. Will theatrical come back? If you can watch Dune what, the day it comes out at home on HBO Max or Would go you? to a movie theater, yeah. what are you going to do? And, you know, there were enough movies like The Batman that shot both shot by Greg Fraser where I was like, no, this is important. I want to go see this on a big screen. I feel like Doctor Strange looks to be one of those. I'm glad that Sam Raimi, who started as the humblest of indie filmmakers, is making a movie like this. And it's his first movie in 12 years. So I'm just honestly glad we still have we have a new Sam Raimi movie to see. I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm with you. Hey, let's get to the interview with Greg Middleton. Here he is. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here today with Gregory Middleton, one of the two cinematographers on the recently concluded first season, we don't know about a second season yet, of Disney Plus's Moon Knight. Welcome. Thank you for coming back. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. We So we had you on uh, very recently when we did a panel and we had you and several other DPs, but uh, Moon Knight, I think, had not yet dropped when we were talking to you. And, uh, you know, we are extraordinarily excited about Moon Knight over here. And uh, it's interesting because we've talked to the DP of uh, Loki and the DP of WandaVision. Disney Plus is killing it. Like, I can't believe the quality of the of the programming that comes out of Disney Plus. Before we even get into it, just talk to me about, like, what it's like to work on a Disney plus series because like when it first launched I was like oh cool lots of Disney stuff I have a little kid whatever and then the series work has just been just off the charts yeah I mean the one thing that's interesting is uh, just because also Disney owns Marvel obviously but Marvel still makes the shows and then they deliver to Disney plus they are still separate companies even though they're owned by the same one and that sounds strange mm -hmm. but you know it's an interesting spot because Marvel has their own process for how they develop and creatively make their films, right? That they've been, you know, developing their entire time as they built their studio from the ground up. And they, it, adapting that method, like that works for them and the films to something that can still work for what is essentially more like a cable television schedule or somewhere a hybrid in between. It's not quite, we don't quite have the time of feature film to make it, but they really want these projects to be as ambitious as the feature films in a lot of ways. So that's quite tricky to them to sort of slowly develop how to do that and 
keep the kind of creative you know, flexibility and control and quality that they want at all, as well as fit into what is a much tighter schedule. Yeah. But it's a little bit like halfway between feature films and halfway between cable, somewhere in that range of how we would make them. Well, and this is maybe a grotesque generalization, but I feel like the MCU as a whole, you know, it started with Iron Man and John Favreau, but after a point, it almost started to feel like the biggest budget television series ever, where it, it felt like we were supposed to tie everything together and there was as much, con- there was so much focus on continuity. But once they finished Endgame, it feels like they were like, let's mess around. Like that's when you get WandaVision. That's when you get Loki and Moon Knight, which is not a superhero character. I mean, it's hard to even argue that Moon Knight really is a superhero. It's just an insane story. It's such a brilliant story. But the filmmakers tapped to do that are known for their more independent, bent, intriguing, uh, very intellectual kind of psychological. You can't really call them horror movies, but sort of, kind of like they're they have such a distinct tone. And I feel like it was a perfect fit for what they did with Moon Knight. Yeah, I think if I look at the look at the earlier films, they are a bit like a, almost like a big miniseries where you're drawing along, along a longer emotional journey of these characters in amongst other plots, which is very much like series and a bit like what they do in the comics. I think that was very deliberate that they're trying to do that. But of course, one of the failings in comics storytelling is you start to, you know, you make so many comics, you've done everything, then you have every version of everybody. You have an evil twin, you have this, you have you know, time traveling, <laughs> every possible, you know, machination you can. But after they finished Endgame, I mean, I'm just speculating on that stuff, that when they look at the kinds of projects they were trying to add later was they were just trying to diversify them enough to make one, if you might really be interested in one particular hero, it doesn't have to be for everybody, because now they can make something that's a little more distinct. So like Moon Knight was the character that when it came up for me, I mean, I, I kind of jumped up and down. This is looks this is, looks incredibly crazy, very emotionally complicated. And it's really about, it's about like, it could be about a very intense, like personal journey of somebody who's self-reconciling. And that's that's an incredible story. It's like a plot coming out of um, uh, coming out of character. Something I really really like. And that's that's irrespective of what genre it's in. You know, that's a drama. That's not necessarily. It's a superhero thing. It's not about a cape and and you know batons and and grappling hooks. It's about you know it's about what's going on inside a person and what yeah. creates that. In a similar way to like the best Batman stories are about Bruce Wayne, right? They're not about Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, because Batman's a creation of Bruce Wayne in the same way. That, so it's about the, it's about a person. It's not about it's not about the heroics, if you know what I mean. So this, I think, that's the chance to do something like that really, really intensely because it's so integral to the character that he's a, a split, and then they develop the script in a way to really emphasize that and to make it much more part of the story. So what happened in, as a, okay, so I know a lot of young cinematographers usually listen to this podcast. So just to, if I frame the question one way, I usually get hired in one or two ways. And it hasn't really changed throughout all my career. You get hired by people you've, who worked with before or people that then get a good reference and they know those people you've worked before well. It's like getting a good quality reference is you need to know the other person has good knowledge of you. Do you know what I mean? As a person, and the same way when I, you hire a crew today. So in this case, this uh, Moon Knight was, was an exception to that rule because it was the first job I've gotten a long time where I didn't know anyone involved at all. I didn't know any, any of the producers. I know my name had kind of been brought up at Marvel before a couple of times for some other mm-hmm. projects. So I think my name had been familiar, but the, uh, but the Watchmen series and specifically the Extraordinary Being episode came to mind a lot for them. They were really, they were really impressed with that episode, the, the people at Marvel and they, the, you know, they it's an amazing them. episode. It's, it's just incredible work. Oh, oh thank through. you. I'm, yeah. It's a, I'm very proud of the, of the show. And, and they put, so I've got the, I, I end up on their list of like, let's keep an eye on this person and let's see where we want to put them. And then I think I end up that list on Moon Knight because of that mostly. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a process of two things. You get hired by, one, you sort of need to be approved by the company. So you'd be on a list that they will say, yes, we'll be willing to hire these people, which is usually about experience or, 
you've done something long enough or vetted enough to know that they can can handle the project. Uh, and the second thing is then it's like you you let the creative people debate and pick from after meeting them and who's a good fit. So that's how it that's how it happened. Which is a, it's a very unusual to not know anyone else involved in the project before. Usually it's at least one person. So that's the first time that happened in a long time. Well, I guess it, it makes some kind of sense, though, that all the directors on this are people who kind of come out of indie film. And so probably for the stu- on the studio side, they're going to want somebody to shoot it who's rock solid and has done kind of premium cable kind of stuff. Yeah. So and help with the sort of pressure of that. And also the technical aspects of the black and white episode on, on Watchmen is like episode five of our show of Moon Knight is, is similar in some ways. There is going to be like a, there was going to be a sort of a confusing first person journey through someone's life. We knew that was going to be part of that story. And Mahan was very mindful of like how we might do that in something a similar type of way. And and my experience with doing that and doing seamless transitions and stuff was something he was very interested in because he'd never done anything like that. So you want to try to build, hit the sweet spot between all of them, like have some technical expertise so I can handle that and make suggestions, but also understand a little bit more about how, you know, independent filmmakers work and think and sort of hybridize the two things a little bit because Marvel doesn't power the directors of their shows, you know, Kevin, Brad, Victoria, and Lewis will yeah. kind of shepherd the things you post So because they're, they're showrunning the whole universe. And so they really are the showrunners. So there's a bit of an interesting gap there between the, the two processes. One of the things that was most surprising to me is like, you know, for most superhero movies, you know, like I love the new Batman movie and all that, but it's like you're there for the superhero action. And maybe it's because to a degree I come in with no preconceptions about Moon Knight because I've never read the comic. I was way more intrigued by the characters and the big action fight scenes. They're not obligatory. They're awesome. They're really well done. But I was I cared about like the stakes were always high because I knew what was going on. Well, you care about it because you care about the characters. So yeah. There's stakes if you care about them. And it's not like Marvel has a tendency to cast not great actors. All the actors in, in these Marvel properties are you know, just amazing performers, first and foremost. But it was amazing to see somebody of Oscar Isaac's caliber in that role because he has to play multiple people, basically, and uh, like fully multiple people. But I, I want to talk a little bit about your approach because there's a lot of play with reflection. And before I even knew what was going on, I'm like watching it because this is how my mind works. I'm like, man, they're putting a lot of reflective surfaces in every room. And I was wondering about your approach to creating the reflections, how much of that was practical, how much of it was like shoot it later on a green screen, because sometimes for people who haven't seen the show, sometimes we have one Oscar Isaac in the room and then his, he's talking to his own reflection. So his reflection is not him at the moment. Did you capture that? Did you just do another take where you had him do that moment so the reflection would be the same? Or what was the methodology to creating that in the I don't know, what was your overall what inspired you and how did you approach it? I mean, one of the fun things about being like my position as a cinematographer is you end up being part of like the, you know, it's, there's a lot of illusions. You're trying to make a lot of illusions, like almost always in any time, any kind of filmmaking, right? You're trying to pretend you're somewhere else or create stuff like that. And this was a big one. Everybody was like, oh, how are we going to deal with these reflections? Like, how are we going to do this? Uh, and so there's a number of things. It'd be myself, you know, the directors in the visual effects department led by Sean Faden, discussing the various ways we could do it. So there's a few things that you, you know, from a technical standpoint, you got to be aware of. One is, if the camera moves a lot, then you're getting something where you have to recreate the move to do the other reflection because you have, they have to be in sync. And that, which means you have to know which take you're going to use. And so we were looking at some interesting systems. There's some very fascinating work now where there's a way to do something where you capture somebody and make them into a 3D model and you can move the camera. So you would put, it's kind of like a booth where you put a, an actor in a booth with like cameras all around and also screens, which we would play like the lighting of the room. So you'd have the, the accurate lighting on the person. And by capturing them all around, you can basically then build a 3D model of this person that then you can rotate. 
Mm. So there was an, there was a, there was a thought of like that could be one of that would be like a perfect technique because then if you if you're on the set and Muhammad likes to be doing a lot of handheld camera especially in the first couple episodes and moving the camera around because then what you would do is because the problem is the reflection has to move correct perspective to the camera so the way is like well how do we do that and do it and not be slave to this thing and do it a, as motion control because we want to do that in every scene we don't have the time for it. And also then you can't be as responsive to the performance of Oscar as, you know, what the exterior version, not the reflection version of the scene. If he wants to have his timing different every take, you know, we want to be able to do that. So that became like, the, that's the one limit usually for reflection is like, if you got to move the camera, they have to figure out how to make the perspective shift on the other plate. So on the, on the reflection part, which you'll shoot mm. separately. The second thing is, is Oscar going to want to be able to go back and forth between Mark and Steven, you know, on the fly, how long does the makeup change? And also, is it something he can easily do? this point early in the process he isn't sure how easy that's going to be i mean by the end he's doing it within scenes seamlessly right but in the first week of shooting you know i mean he doesn't really know yet he's like i don't know like i want to i want to stay in one character because he's also building a character so yeah yeah you know for a performer like him it's not like don't on day one yeah no go be steven again no be marking back he's not gonna be able to do that nor will he want to because he wants to be able to he's still building what he's doing so you have to sort of factor all those things in so the basic parameters become moving the camera if you don't move the camera how can we do it lock off is pretty easy you get all the information of where the camera is and you can shoot the reflection at another point later and just match it, which is, you know, cause you now it's fine. And that means you can sort of pan the camera like nodally, if you know what that means, that means the camera's kind of panning around the center of the lens so the perspective doesn't change. So that yeah. way the camera can pan it, pan and tilt, which means you can, you, you can walk up to a mirror and we can uh, and do that. And then it can pan away. Like a good example of that is the one on the bus for, uh, side of the bus during the fight in episode two, in the episode of the Andrew shot when he's up against it and he's just gotten up as Mr. Knight and, he just punched the jackal and he looks over and the and Oscar as Steve as Mark now the fuck she's like, hey, that's a pretty good punch. You know, so admiring Steven's gumption. And then it pans off as they go around. But that's kind of a nodal pan. So even though it looks like the camera's moving, it's just a pan. So the perspective of the of the person in the reflection and Mark doesn't really change. So that's one that he can do it. He can act as Steven. And later we can just recreate the same angle for uh, Mark and put him into the reflection. That's usually the easiest one to, one to do. Mm -hmm. At times, in, uh, in certain pieces of set, we would have, where he doesn't change very much, we could do it live. There's, some, there's a couple of reflections in the, um, in almost in episode two, they did live in the, uh, the closed down theater on the triangular thing. Yeah, yeah. Those that could be live, or, there's, one, or there's, a, there's a fantastic one in episode three, where he's walking into the chamber of the gods, and he walks in and comes down this corridor with all the, the beautiful metal surface sides, and the camera's tracking back with Oscar, and then it pans over into the gold reflection and he, Steven says, oh my God, we're in the great period of Giza. This is fantastic. And then you pan back to Oscar. That's one take. That's all in camera. <laughs> Sensing the camera go off him, becoming Steven. And the last line is just after it clears the thing. And then he stops being Steven and you pan back and it's, and it's, it's Oscar being Mark again. And that's all in camera. And that's like, and it's, we, I, the day I was like, how the hell did he do it? He was, you know, we got really good at the timing, a little bit of yeah. a gap. We got out of the wall. So we sort of like every, we sort of like try to look at all the possible techniques. The most complicated one that was uh, in episode one that was going to be hard was the scene in the bathroom mirror at the end of, in the fourth, the three sets of bathroom mirrors in the end yeah. of episode one, because that looked like a lot of camera move, a lot of perspective shift, and like, how do we do that? And because Steven as a character is going to be quite panicked, the doing it in motion control would not have really been practical. One, we're looking at a mirror that face, we have mirrors facing everywhere. So how would you not see the motion control rig and how would it not be in the way of everything? And two, it also would mean you'd be driving this camera move like in a, because motion control is tricky in a way that once you pick your one pass, you're just repeating everything else the same. And yeah. because the, it was such a frantic scene for Oscar playing Steven, it was way nicer to be looser with the camera and like have, uh, in this case, Robin, our Steadicam operator, 
to be able to follow him in that way. So we worked out a way that we could, well, how, if we could, might be able to do this way, we're not moving so much and we try and keep the pans notable that we can maybe do them with the plates being static and they can track them slightly. If we don't change the perspective too much, so to, to, to prove that concept would work, we listed a complete test where we, we put the bathroom mirrors up uh, in the correct orientation, like at the real set without, the, without being in the actual set all the same direction. And we did, we did a test where I used the camera handheld. We had a stand in, went through, worked out all the move, where they would go, where, you know, where Oscar would be with the walking back to the door and all that. And then we shot the plates all in one day and they put them together to see if it would actually work as a proof of concept. And we did enough that we could, if we, as long as we were not tracking so much, like we weren't moving too much during the moment of seeing the mirrors, it actually worked. So it was sort mm. of a combination where that should have been a motion control shot, but that would never have been doable that way. But it took doing tests to prove to everyone like, hey, this could work. And then, you know, as Dan or one of our VFX supervisors was comping it together, it's like, yeah, this is going to work. Like, it really works. So I feel like we don't talk about testing stuff enough on this podcast. But when you have an idea like that and, you know, you're doing a TV series, so you don't have forever to do it. You know, you've got to figure it out and, and ex like on the day you've got to execute that. And you probably had you probably had a busy day besides that stuff. <laughs> and so so you've got to get through all that stuff. Exactly. Like that was the end of week one. It was day, day five. And uh, so we had time and prep because we were not shooting yet to do proper tests for that. Things like that. It's really important to to do tests. You wouldn't also you learn something every time, right? You learn stuff. Oh, this is a one little, listen, there's the one real hitch to this. It's like there's one move, which if you look, there's a flaw in the shot. If you want to be watched carefully, when we go into the last mirror at the back, when we kind of come behind Steven, Steven turns around and sees himself in the, the rear mirror, the one at the back of the be, uh, bathroom. And that one tracks a bit off just because that one timing, you know, Robin's timing and Oscar's timing of the move, like he, Oscar needed to do the move for us. We had to, to do a bit. So the tr it's a tr it just tracks slightly if you watch it, like it's a little bit of sliding, but it's hardly noticeable. But, you know, doing the tests let us know that this is the one part that's the trickiest for us. And the other part, which is really hard is, Going into side mirrors is that, you know, Robin is there in the steady cam. Obviously, he's being erased in all those mirror shots because when we do the, the main plate, it's Oscar as Steven and Robin in the steady cam, you know, and the boom guy. And and so, but we want to make sure we don't ever block the real reflections of him in the distant mirrors because they want to use all that material and just take the one out they're going to replace with Mark. So it's very tricky to actually compose and get the foreground and of those and not, you know, not have Robin in front of the other reflections that are coming from behind him, you know, in the infinity mirror idea. So all these t test things, they give you like the thing like now we know what to look out for. So it's still a very difficult shot to execute, but it's not a complete mystery. You don't want to be showing up on production time with an unknown mystery box of problems and going ahead because something could involve like construction and things like that. You can do that on a longer schedule, but on a, a schedule like ours, you can't. Um, but the number of the number of reflections when possible were live. Just come back, you know, come back as Steven, go to the three pl places and have him be Steven or whoever it was, stand there with the real mirror. Uh, and other times there would be elements, you know, we would just record the character information and do a bunch of reflections on one day and he could just be that character. And just like, all those bits in Mark in that bathroom were all done in one day, you know, like several months later, once oh, wow. the take and all that. So, well, and it's interesting too, that you, you kind of have to allow for, for Oscar Isaac to kind of get his head around the performance. You can't just ask him to turn that on and off right from the beginning. And I do think that, you know, maybe somebody with less experience might call on an actor to do that and giving him that space, you know, maybe created a little bit of extra work for post or whatever, but the show doesn't work if we don't care about this character. So you got to do it. Paramount performance becomes paramount in that way. Cause when I just remember what that, like the take that's in the show, like when he's absolutely freaking out at the end of that thing, cause like it goes from Steven being 
kind of a lovably goofy, you know, clumsy fellow to somebody who you see after the date scene, like you really feel for him. It's like, wow, you kind of want this guy to get this. And it, it goes from a comedic performance of running away from this monster to the, like real terror. Like Stephen is absolutely terrified. Like it's, you're actually going, wow, it's like, it's a, it's a quite a transformation. It, it, it's quite moving. Um, I was going to ask about VFX because VFX play a big part in the story and we have fully formed characters like the F. Murray Abraham character who's like in every episode. How did you go about incorporating the VFX and also just like from a creative standpoint, F. Murray Abraham sounds like a voice in your head. He doesn't sound like someone who was on set. So how did you go about from a production standpoint, kind of accommodating for a character like that and also framing for a character who wasn't there? Did you have a puppet or something for reference or how did you go about figuring that out? Yeah, there's a two there's two parts to this. There's the sort of production process and there's the cinematography. So yeah, when he's a character in these scenes, even though he'll be an animated character later, you want to have someone on set that they can act with. So in this case, we have uh, Muhammad hired a fellow named Kareem, who's like a quite a tall guy, who's uh, also a cinematographer and an actor. And so he was in a full-on Khonshu style costume. You know, oh, really? Not quite, yeah, not quite as detailed, which is a good reference. And he's, he's tall. He's like six one or something like that. And then he would wear a stick on his back, you know, with a harness with uh, the correct height of nine feet for the top of Khonshu's head. And that would allow, because when we're blocking a scene, one, he's a, he knows all the lines, he's an actor. He can play the scene with Oscar. You know, we can discuss walking around and we have this thing to compose with, right? Because a nine foot high character and a, you know, if it's someone who's like just under six feet, that's a pretty big, it's like a three, you know, like a three yeah. and a half feet difference. So you do have to pay attention to where they're at to do that. And then you want also, again, like the point of view thing I mentioned earlier, how intimidating do you want Concha to be? Do you want to be looking up or looking down on Mark or sort of figure those things out as you're blocking. But having an actor be there for that allows you to block the scene conventionally with another actor which is very important for Oscar and everybody else. And I think that's that's the first thing. The second thing is them wearing the costume is a good reference because then there's a reference for lighting when they walk around and for me and see where shadows would fall and stuff like that. And just a rough idea of the color and things like that, even though it's not exactly the same, you know, Megan would, the costume made this as close as possible to what, you know, the final version was going to be. And then this, and then the third thing is we have a giant conchu head, which is a like a sculpted head that's like, you know, three feet long. It looks very, pretty much identical to what you saw on in the final show, the CG version. It's a, it's the thing they would scan to create the finished one, and it's incredibly detailed and it's a great paint job. And then we'll do a reference pass where we'll just walk that through the set and put it in all the places the head would be in tilt. Oh, away. yeah, and you do that as well as shooting the sort of balls, the silver ball and the gray ball, and mm. those are all used for the CG lighting. The silver and gray ball give you the various ways of like, let's say, like a, a water droplet would reflect something, and they can use that to map that stuff onto a CG object. But the phys the actual puppet, the actual like ma maquette thing of the giant head is like a perfect reference. You record that and go, oh yeah, that's how that should look if you've been in the light. And so that as a process, you know, you get that, he acts a scene. Sometimes we do a pass where he's he's not in the, in the shot for certain things or a clean plate, depending on where they're walking. Sometimes he's there the whole time. We do just a clean plate to get behind him. It's, it's sort of things like that. And that will change depending on what the shot is. But the bigger thing for so cinematography wise is I have to light the thing that's not there. I know which sounds totally crazy, but it's really important because you you learn early on doing anything with CG characters. If if I don't, if I just assume they'll light this person there and make it match what I want and don't actually light a physical thing in that spot, it can really go badly quickly. And it'll suddenly look like it's not really in the scene. Yeah. Because they might be adding light where I have no light. And then there's light falling on somebody that clearly has no effect on the rest of the set around it properly. So it's very important to have that like head. And we, I'll spend the time lighting that head as if it's really there because it makes a big difference. It's not like post-production is its own little island of time where they're like, yeah, we'll spend a year lighting this shot. It's like, no, 
they're going to be down to the wire like us at the last five minutes of ATK. <laughs> so if I can light the maquette beautifully and make it look great, that is like hugely helpful. Uh, and it makes the integration of those characters much better. And we did that for all the characters for like for Talret, we had a giant, you know, hippo head, nice. a giant crocodile head for, you know, Amit. And, uh, and Amit looks great in the Chamber of the Gods, right? I made sure there's a lot of different types of colors of light to give her like, you know, there's fire from underneath, and there's a bit of blue from above. And you know, I made sure that all that stuff in that set would have that because I know it would help bring out all the various you know, shades and reflective qualities of her, both her costume and her hair bead things and her sort of like her, what becomes her tail is this sort of like dreadlock thing that becomes yeah. her tail. And it's all these detailed things and incredible eyes. You know, you want to really think about that when you're designing the lighting. I mean, I'm lighting for somebody who's walking around as nine feet high, but I really have to think about it. I could even, if I don't do it properly, it won't look right. Yeah, I mean, lighting and composition and everything would have to change if you, yeah, if, if you're assuming that that stuff is is in the scene. And what about like when you're doing, uh, you know, some of these handheld non-motion controlled shots? How do you handle the reference stuff? Do you walk through the, like a rough version of the blocking or something? Like if you had to paint out, say, a Steadicam operator and a boom operator, what plates do you need to get for those things? Usually, we, I mean, they try to avoid painting stuff out where everything's moving. Often in some things, they can just pull from the frames before and after something passes in front of something, you know what I mean? You can still make yeah. stuff up. So you have to be careful if you're moving too much. But often we'll just do like a, a clean pass, repeat the thing and get as close as possible. And then they will just lift what they can from that. It gets a little crazier if it's doing like a lot of camera perspective shift and that's something we would, we, they would try and avoid. If it's a clean plate sometimes, and we've done a few things, we might do as just a static shot for clean plate and they'll take that stuff and track it into the handheld because it's easier for them to mm. do that, create a track based on the motion of the camera because th that stuff's very easy to do now there's more automatic things you can create a track for something like that than just track the little still thing that post or whatever you're going to move around and they're, they're quite good at that i mean there's a lot of things like that that get painted out in scenes too where we haven't we don't have a clean plate like there's many times where we like erased people are erased you know <laughs> bits of sets and things like that that happen yeah. and marvel's you know famous for doing that and they're doing that without anything to do anything other than what we shot <laughs> so <laughs> it, it can be done it's often very helpful even if it just means you use it to make some cg things or grab something tile it move it along things like that or painting out stuff there's a couple things in the ceiling to have painted out a couple times so you talked about volume stuff and i don't know how much you did with that but like what were the because your schedule is shorter what were the tricks and like where was production even based like i i was wondering was it in london was because like the egypt stuff looked very authentic i've never been to cairo but it looked authentic where were you able to cheat and where were you actually there doing it so uh okay so the one thing that happens like unless it's like a more tv cable schedule it's the biggest thing the thing you can't really do usually is travel a lot. Like on Thrones, they would do that a lot, but it was basically like you would go there and block shoot the whole season. Like go to Castle, Castle Black, for example, you shoot everything for the entire season in two weeks and all the teams go up there and alternate until they got their work done. For someone like Moon Knight, it has so many locations, so many places. Like the biggest thing is you want to try and do all those as close to one production base as possible. You don't want to move countries and go back and forth because you, to do that, you have to also scout it. Then you have to go back and like tech survey it. And like it, it starts to eat into, it becomes quite a, a time investment. So uh, the show was based in Budapest. So we shot almost the entire thing in Budapest. Uh, oh, wow. the, the, the road, the snaking road uh, chase scene after one was in Slovenia. And only the second unit went there. So only the, the car stuff was there. And they had all the background plates there. And Oscar we shot in the back lot uh, because we only had like two and a half days to shoot all this material. And so to do that in a, like a feature film might do like the Children of Men style with a, like a, a proper car where he pretends to drive and we would do it all in camera. Mm -hmm. But that would take two weeks to shoot that sequence. And we you know we have two and a half to three weeks to shoot the entire episode. <laughs> so that's like, that's not Which possible. Still, that's, that's a good length of time to shoot an episode of television though. 
It is, but it's like when you do things yeah. like certain things, like, you know, one day, we're, what are we doing? We're doing him falling down this hill, getting up, talking to Kanshu, and then we're doing him falling out of the air, which is not in the episode anymore, and doing one more piece, and that's a day. And yeah. that's like, that's scream time wise, that's maybe, you know, 45 seconds, 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And that's a nowadays shooting. So now you're realizing, wow, we got to shoot the bus in a day or this in a day. And, the, you know, the museum and the museum was a huge amount of work. The, the original sequence of him being chased was much longer. We shot way more material than is in the episode. So it's a bit tricky to do that. So the, the scheduling thing usually means you're trying to move around less and then you're trying to figure how to get all these environments and all these, uh, you know, destinations in your show without it costing too much time and, without, and with it seeing being seamless. The Cairo stuff was all mostly a backlot. That was all uh, like a street we had to build. Uh, Stefania Seller, an incredible production designer, built a combination of a square. We'd done it to the extent that they'd gone to Cairo and scouted and, and scouted all kinds of types of areas that they wanted to use. And Mahan was very specific about trying to get like a very cosmopolitan feel. Oh, wow. Cairo and not, yeah, not make it like, like one sort of look, you know, like they would, so the, the neighborhoods have a slightly different feel in terms of like what's around and the variety of light sources and things at night. So she built a one big backlot area that had like a street and a, like a couple of alleys and an offshoot alley and a, and a square that we kind of use for everything. And it looks quite different depending on the, which angles you go from. And one reason you can't do, you know, you could, is it on location is if you do that in real Cairo, you have to buy out every business and kick everybody out because you're going to shoot all night for like two weeks. And that's not really practical usually. That's, I mean, to do, and also you want to blow up a store or blow up the concrete in the middle of the street or put yeah. wires up. The, the kind of work you need to do like for the finale, it's just not really practical in location. It needs to be a place you can actually control. One, to make it safe for stuns. And two, just the controllability of it. You know, doing something where, you know, a walk and talk with two actors on a busy real street is a little bit more doable. But when you're going to do all the kind of things we have to do, it's usually not practical to do that in a real place. And also that means going to Cairo. And we're like, this, that was, it became like cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. So that didn't happen. Whereas things like the the desert, which obviously a real desert is very helpful for that. That was done in Jordan and it was shot in uh, in Wadi Rum, which is kind of where they did the Martian. If you've seen the Martian, you'll recognize some of the landscape. It's a very famous. Oh. Yeah, it's an incredibly famous park. It's uh, just outside of Aqaba in Jordan. It's incredibly gorgeous at all kinds of amazing rock formations and so, so the tomb set was there, driving through the desert was there, going, they're going through the canyon was, was there in four. And so all that stuff was done in a few days. And we did that at the very end of the shoot. So that was the one big location that we went to. That's interesting. And I was curious, thanks to the to Greg Fraser and The Mandalorian, like when I see something that uses a lot of locations, I'm like, are they doing an Unreal Engine kind of a, you know, background screen thing? And it's sometimes very easy to spot that and sometimes it's next to impossible. So like, did you use any techniques like that at all? Well, we, we talked about it. You have to use a new, do enough to make it cost effective. It's not cheap. It's, it's those deploying steps are very expensive and they're very, we looked at what the costs are. Uh, to set one up where there's a couple in Europe we could have maybe traveled to. The other issue with them is you have to have your backgrounds before you start shooting because obviously yeah. you're going to film stuff to do that. Also, if you want to focus on the background, volume is not a good use for it for everything because, of course, you can't focus on the screens. You're you're just using them to be out of focus behind yeah. people. So, like, there's some things that might have been useful for that. Like, let's say, like in episode six when Mark and Steven are after they've come out of the tomb and they've, you know, he's been brought back to life. He's talking to Conchu. We did that on that little sand hill. That's the same little bit of sand we used for episode three when he's winding back the sky. We just oh. brought it. I just brought in some more rocks and I was like, okay, I light it with a low, <laughs> a low sun. The slow settings, the shadow moves up. The, you know, I, I had to create a different look for it. But that could have been a volume type thing, possibly. But we wouldn't have had any of that material and approved what it looks like. And and also on a lot of these volume shoots, I know they use it for 
the lighting, but I know on a lot of these shows, they do still replace all the backgrounds because they're still wanting to tweak them and change them a bit. So then it's like, it's useful for the lighting standpoint, but it's more about how much you will do and is it worth the cost? And we just would not have had the material in advance to know exactly what would be back there. You know, I think it's, it's, it's useful. It's definitely, it's an amazing technique. And it's, I think it's a couple of scenes in the Batman, which I think are hard to even tell that we're like done like that. I think there's one up in the scout in the, uh, one of the buildings where he's talking to Catwoman. I think there's one in those. It's a volume. Oh, really? It's, 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 yeah, it's pretty great. I didn't know that. tell. Yeah. Yeah. Greg said he would come back and talk about the Batman. Like I, when we had him on for Dune, I was asking him about that for Dune and they like didn't do any of it. <laughs> like they went out of their way to get it for real. It's, yeah. It's not for everything, you know, it's, yeah. it's and also for my director, it's like, he doesn't like a lot of virtual stuff. He's used to making films on location and yeah. he will, you know, he'll want to change his blocking and discovers blocking in a real place. Here's, here's a, here's a cinematography left turn story, which like happens when we were doing a scene on the bus, when, you know, we've just come out of the elevator in episode one and conchie has been haunting Steven and he's like panicking in the elevator. And after getting off the top floor, the lights flash, we turn around and there's giant Conchie's head, you know, terrifying him. And then he wakes up at the start and he's yeah. on the bus on the way to work. And he's like, wow, it's a, originally that scene continues for like two or three more minutes. And we staged it all in one shot and the, the slowly the acolytes are all surround Stephen and he's, you know, you see a tattoo in someone's wrist. And it was quite elaborate. It was all one shot, uh, you know, bust against green screen because we, we didn't want to drive too much because it's such a long scene. So that's all against green screen outside with the uh, plates in London. So we finished the scene in the bus and, and we've planned this to be inside and we, they've made the whole set to work so I can look inside the bus this way and go look over here. We're walking over and Muhammad's like, Greg, I want to shoot outside the bus. <laughs> as, we're, as we're walking from the one bus set, I'm like, okay, of course, good to know right now because now I don't have anything prepared for that. And also now how do I make a shot that's not going to show that we're, you know, because the bus is all reflective. And so, yeah. but then we work out the shot into the side of the bus. It's quite dark. And I just put a lot of black stuff behind camera to make sure that it wouldn't show the like green trees and all this nonsense. It's not London. And we sort of worked out a shot that could sort of do that and fall to the window and see Harold walk up and, and confine us. And, and we worked it out. But that was a complete improv. That was like, okay, let's figure out how to make a shot that works. And the shot's great. And it would turn out really well. And it's, it's, it, it's movement. We see Oscar's reflection again. This whole idea of he's now doubting, is this really me, him in there? And so mm -hmm. it's another one of these ones that just makes you think about it. And it's a great shot. But that was completely like, you know, that was an on the day. I got an hour and a half left to finish this scene. <laughs> how do we, how do we do this and not spoil the illusion? But it was great. It turned out really well. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, well, my last question for you was, and that might've been the answer to it was like, what was something like when you were reading the script, you were just like, how on earth is this even physically possible? There's no way we're going to be able to pull it off. And how did you pull it off? Okay. That, my favorite quote for that. And um, what's that? What's the line of it's like, okay, how do you eat a whale? one bite at a time <laughs> it's like it's like it seems like it's impossible and it's just a question of just breaking things down into smaller and smaller chunks because each chunk is like each each thing is a problem to solve but when it looks at it when you're looking at a 110 day schedule and it looks like and you read some of these scripts and it's like uh we're here we're there we're on a rooftop we're in a pigeon thing a pigeon coop and then we're on this roof there's a fight and then we're in a walk talk in an alley and then this magical portal ends up that i'm in the chamber of the gods and then we're here then we're this then we're on a street then we're in the felucca then we're in the backyard then there's gold there's gold pyramids there's horses it's an all-night shoot by the way that whole sequence was shot during the shortest nights of the year the week of june 20th oh wow nightmare so it's six hours of night so like half the time you'd normally have also, you're, do, you're doing all this during the pandemic, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Goggles and mask. And then we go into a vehicle that has to be driving from the city into the desert. Then we have like, you know, drone shot in the desert. Then we have to be out in the desert at night in the nowhere with a map. And then we go on the top of a hill and the sky goes backwards. 
I mean, if you look at all every, every there isn't a single easy scene in that list of scenes. It's not like <laughs> on the killing, like, hey, it's Lennon and Holder's office and we're, you know, they're going to sit there and talk for a bit. You know, it's like, there's no scenes like that in the scripts. And that's also why they're sort of prepped like movies and we, they split the directing duties up and why, you know, one director can't do six hours of this. You don't have the time to prep it all. So even prepping, we prep basically two movies with the material by doing four episodes. That's quite a bit. And you're still prepping as you're going when you get near the end. But by the end of it, we're making stuff up. Like I'm prepping what's going next week. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not prepping. It's not at the beginning when you've got many, many weeks. So you sort of do it one bite at a time is the big thing. But it is intimidating. It is like, it is a, a very interesting part of the process of trying to just take every little thing and figure out what's the economic way to do it. You know, and what will create the effect you want. We'll give you the journey you want and then map it all out. And you can go on top of that. And then it's one thing I wanted to maybe talk about before we sign off is like just from the, there's a certain thing in the reality of the episode and the reality of the story that like can shift a bit. So there's the idea that maybe we don't know what's real and what isn't real for, but Stephen doesn't know at the beginning and it's sort of a constant guess. And then we get into the, you know, the asylum episode. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a big theme of that, of trying to include things in the imagination. If you're imagining something, if we have a dream, like we pull things from reality into our dreams, right? We don't always have like a totally original thing or dream. It's usually built from things in our recent experience. So as people spotted now that the show's already been on, in the fish tank, in his thing, there's a lot of things in there that are all in the duat, right? The barge itself is really there. There's a pyramid, there's the gates of Osiris, and there's a country temple. All in, oh, all in that thing. I need to go yeah, back and look, look at that, that again. Yeah, if you look at that, they're all there, right? So, so then you're like, if this whole thing's in his mind, then like those little things could have been like how he would have imagined the barge, if you just say with all his imagination. You know, Muhammad will always say it's like it can it must always be a question because a lot of Moon Knight is about, you know, doubting reality and determining reality. Mm. There's a lot of elements to that. And so we want to put that into everything. And then that moved over into the idea of like making the visual journey not like repetitive in certain ways, but I was trying to use certain colors repetitively at times because that would also lead this whole thing of like one could be a bit the other. The, the restaurant is like kind of red and gold. And so is Mogart's like red and gold, mm. you know, and and there's things like uh, the Feluca has like sort of like a scarlet and blue light as the two major lights that are on them. And I sort of lit them with the opposite colors, right? Like she's, her scarlet light is on, on Oscar and his blue light is kind of on her, which is like a subtle thing to sort of hint at the, you know, where they go later, the scarlet scarab and it's her color. Same with the, the flares are kind of scarlet colored and four that she's using. And it's like, it's one, it can create the palette of things that are a bit familiar, but also it's like, it can be sort of another flavor of that, like, oh yeah, if you're pulling all these things into your mind, it's, you know, it's going to be stuff you've sort of seen before. Anything I do that way, I don't want it to be so loud and ostentatious that it draws people out. You know what I mean? That's the, the other part of this is you don't want it to be so broad that you make people think you're doing all this stuff. Because then you're, if they think that, then they've, they've, I've pulled them out of the story. That's the, the biggest sin is to do that. You don't want the audience to go, oh wow, cool shot. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. as opposed to like, cool but also they're just thinking about what's going on do you know what i mean like yeah take yeah. them on it like being in jordan is like holy cow look at this right not like i'm trying to be extra clever because if you if they sense you're trying to be clever or something then you're just you're just pulling people out you're not you're not you're not in tune with doing it for the right reasons or the right intentions and i think audiences can sense that and that's the thing to avoid and we were already a bit over the top with the fact that we had bending reality so you could we could push it a bit farther didn't seem outlandish. I mean, you've got a guy in a cape jumping off a pyramid. <laughs> and so, you know, I can, I can have a whole scene under red light bulbs uh, with a gold pyramid and it seems perfectly normal for that you know, <laughs> environment. And it seems kind of cool. And that look had a whole nother purpose, which was 
like Muhammad really wanted to shoot with three cameras and there was a lot of improvisation in the dialogue in that scene. And I knew I needed to be able to shoot all these different directions without doing much turnaround work because I only had six hours. So under a blanket of slowly twinkling bulbs was a way to one, make a very interesting look for the scene. It made everyone look really cool. We could add the flickering if we wanted. And also it was the way to shoot the scene in a way that, you know, my director wanted to be able to work. I think that's a great place to leave it. And I know we've taken uh, a little bit more of your time than, than I thought we would. Uh, before we go, though, and I think you probably told us this in the previous episode, but like where can people find you or your work or anything online? Okay, so uh, I'm on Instagram, but I don't really use it very often. So I'm uh, Middlecam, I think, on Instagram, or mm. you can just search for Gregory Middleton ASC. You'll also find me there. Uh, I don't really have much, I don't really use Twitter much, so I don't have anything else. Uh, I've got a website, which that also link is on my Instagram. That's probably the best way to go. Uh, and I think I'm going to start posting some more, uh, like some frame grabs and some behind the scenes stuff from Moon Knight. Now the show is out because they didn't want, you know, the, they're very sensitive yeah. to posting stuff at the beginning. Of course. But I'd like to share some of the, some of that stuff on there. So I'll, I'll do that in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I'm, I would be really interested to see some of the behind the scenes stuff that you, you would have uh, seen uh, making that show. It's amazing work. So thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the show. My pleasure. It's great. You do a great job of interviewing people to bring like one attention to the craft then you know when i was starting out there wasn't a lot of stuff there was a lot of books to read but like it's an incredible resource to hear you know i listen to your podcast to hear other dps i know and oh. respect so often it's it's a, oh, wow. it's a great it's a great well it's a great thing you're doing i mean that's why you're doing it to educate yourself but also to educate other people right and i think that's really fantastic and i'm super happy to be on here it's a real pleasure oh thank you so much that means so much to me that you listen to the show <laughs> i really appreciate it <laughs> oh great i'm happy to be on i'll come back at any time So that was Greg Middleton. Thank you, Greg, for coming on twice. I was so flattered that Greg said that he's a fan of the podcast. So that's awesome. That's really great. It means so much to me that that the people who are out there doing the the innovative work want to listen to you and me yammer. They don't want to listen to you and me yammer. They want to listen to their colleagues. Well, that's not true. We've heard it now on a few occasions that there are a few people out there psychopaths that want to listen to you and I yammer on about this stuff, which is kind of, you know, part of why we talk about something topical and, you know, personal obsessions. We do get enough people who say, yeah, you know what? We, we want to hear about it. So, hey, uh, clearly whatever little corner of the world we occupy, there's at least, you know, a half dozen people who, who want to hear what we have. To think. And one of them is Greg Middleton. Maybe <laughs> I get he, he's probably like, hey, I want to hear Wally Fister talk. But yeah. Well, uh, I got some really nice compliments on an interview I did last week, too, which I, I haven't told you about. And uh, you know what? I don't even need to tell you about it. You'll hear the interview and then you'll get to hear all kinds of nice things said about us, which is great. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Awesome. So, so, Ben, guess what time it is? It is 10 o'clock p.m. Anyway, so it is time, though, for an ad from our good friends over at Airy. We are proud to have them as a sponsor. We right? are extremely proud to have Airy Because they are the best. And you and I were talking about this actually before the recording. They're ubiquitous. They're ubiquitous in this industry. I started off saying to you, hey, there's this interesting blog on the Aerie.com website, and you'll never guess what movie used Aerie. And uh, what did you say? All of them? Yeah, <laughs> every, like, find, find a movie that doesn't use an Aerie something, yeah, whether it, it's a lens, a camera, follow focus, a light, like, you know, their, their stuff is everywhere. Well, well, here's the thing about Aerie. Aerie makes, you know, very high tech 2022 new products that are amazing. But they actually have a blog on here all about, you know, the Academy Award winning film Drive My Car. And it used a ton of Aerie stuff. But did they use the latest, greatest stuff? No, they used actually some very, very old stuff. And uh, I mean, old as far as like digital is concerned, they used an Aerie Alexa Mini, but still a workhorse of the industry. But they also shot it on ultra prime lenses, which are 
fairly long in the tooth. I mean, they were a 90s product, but also one of my personal favorites. I actually, I think it's interesting how the look of Ultra Primes have now almost become vintage to some people. And they used, of course, traditional HMIs, the, the M series lighting, you know, very famous, the M18, very big HMI light. And on the Airy.com blog, and you'll see it right at the beginning there for Drive My Car, there's a whole breakdown of what the, the DP and the director used to, to put this movie together. And there's some really great behind the scenes shots, uh, including a process trailer, which is like one of the most minimalistic process trailers I've ever seen. And for those of you unfamiliar with a process trailer, usually uh, it's a very low trailer that's towed. So, you know, actors can pretend to be driving, but really someone else is pulling the car so they can do it safely. I haven't seen this one before where it actually looks like it's two separate trailers like these little ones that just support the back wheels and a different one that supports the front anyway uh, it was a new one on me it's clearly not the type of trailers that i typically see here in the states but it's brilliant it looks like it's super minimalistic and it doesn't raise the car up very high and it looks like it must be very safe and they have all sorts of you know uh, contraptions and rigging for the, the front of the car which you can see with lighting and multiple cameras shooting at the same time it's a fascinating article and you know if you're not familiar with the airy.com website you should go there and take a quick look in the in the news section about how some of their their not current equipment is still out there working every day workhorses in the industry and people are loving it and creating academy award-winning movies with the, with their stuff it's fun it's a good read highly recommend it we'll put a link on the cam noir website excellent excellent and now short ends so ben it's short end time what's your short end this week well, you know, it's funny that we're talking about Sam Raimi because uh, he is of a time of horror filmmakers, well-known horror filmmakers, and someone who's a little bit before his time, but still at it. David Cronenberg. Holy shit. We have a new David Cronenberg movie coming out. Oh, wow. It's called Crimes of the Future, and it stars Viggo Mortensen and Kristen Stewart. And uh, the trailer, the Red Band trailer dropped. There, like a few weeks ago, a teaser dropped. Then they dropped a full trailer for it. And it is David Cronenberg going into the Cronenbergiest body horror looking thing that I've, I've seen him do since, I don't know, Videodrome. It looks Whoa. bonkers. And it looks beautiful. Uh, usually he had worked with Peter Sushitsky, who uh, I think famously shot The Empire Strikes Back. But he shot... Most of uh, Cronenberg's movies, including um, Dead Ringers, which is definitely my favorite. But he worked on this one with somebody named Douglas Koch. And it's, you know, one of those cases where I could look at one frame of this and be like, that's a Cronenberg movie. Like, it unambiguously looks like a Cronenberg movie. I just can't encourage everyone uh, strongly enough to go check out the trailer for Crimes of the Future. It comes out in about a month. I'm sure I'll be running my stinking yap about it the second I see it. It looks so crazy pants and Cronenberg hasn't had a movie in a, in a long time. And he also kind of veered away from doing the thing he's best known for doing body horror kind of stuff. Like the last round of movies that he, that he did were things like uh, history of violence and Eastern Promises, and then he did one called Maps of the Stars. I mean, it's good stuff. I'm not, like, down on it. Oh, no, and, you know, I got to say that Eastern Promises and A History of Violence are probably my two favorite movies from him. I think they're, they're both fantastic, and I know... I, I think is, they're great. And it, it's hard to, like, pick that out because he has so many other great movies in there, too, including, like, if you go back to stuff like The Fly, you know, which was really, you know, traumatic. The Fly is genius. And I think... Yeah. The Fly is, of its period, one of the horror movies that holds up the best. I mean, there are many horror movies that hold up really well. I'm not trying to pick favorites here. And the film he did after that, Dead Ringers, I think is Jeremy Irons' best performance. Maybe Jeremy Irons' two best performances. 
in that one movie and it's just such a it's such a brilliant film and an innovative film in that they created techniques in motion control to allow moving shots with multiple jeremy irons is in them and jeremy's iron jeremy's irons Anyway, what I, I've always appreciated about Cronenberg is that he he tends to do things like with physical effects. He doesn't tend to go overboard with CGI, not that he has to stay away from it. And the physical effects in the trailer alone are, are kind of like, what? And it's definitely uh, reveling in its own weird sexual body horror. It's like everything he's known for all in one movie. I'm going to stop talking about it now, <laughs> but I, I just want to say I cannot wait to see Crimes of the Future. Ilya, what is your short end? I don't know if you're watching it yet, but season three of Barry is going forward. And I am. I, and I'm three episodes in. I binged them all yesterday. And uh, I think that it's entirely possible when shows disappear, they go on hiatus, you know, they, they, they write a new season, that they can skip a beat, that they don't feel like the same. It's not how you remembered it. I am so enjoying the season of Barry. It's like it's like I haven't been away at all. It's like it, it, it yeah. just kept going. And I got to say, Henry Winkler is so much fun in this. It's really great to see, you know, sort of the gang back together. And uh, I can't wait to see where it, where it goes next. It's absolutely worth my time. And if you have HBO and if you've never watched Barry, and I talked to someone the other day who has never seen Barry uh, you, you gotta you gotta give it a try it's really great yeah Barry like when I first heard the concept I was like oh no and the reason that it gave me pause is that I hate it when I as you know one of my pet peeves is movies about people in the movie industry and I was I think convinced over and over again like no no give it a chance uh, and I do love Bill Hader and there's a lot that made me want to see it the fact that it's a that a lot of it takes place at a school run by a failed actor uh, that's like an acting school and and kind of plays into s- some tropes about what L.A. theater is like. And I'm speaking as someone who's been a part of L.A. theater, you know, on and off for the last 20 really? some years. You, you can relate to some of that stuff. So I can relate to it, but also, you know, like some of it, some of it hits kind of close to home. But uh, but yeah, the performances are great. The cast is amazing. You're right. Bill Hader's amazing. Stephen Root is always Stephen amazing. Root. Too. I love Stephen Root. He's yeah, so good. He's, he's su- such a good actor. Obviously, Bill Hader's doing doing a uh, terrific work. And, uh, you know, we had on the show. Uh, a couple years ago, Paula Hadobro, mm-hmm. who went on to do stuff like Pam and Tommy and, of course, Coda. And uh, she shot what, to me, is probably still my favorite episode of Barry. It was just such a perfectly choreographed, perfectly shot episode. And, and I see it, you see it a lot with shows that kind of have legs and stick around for a few years, is you start to see kind of the visual language of them emerging. You know, you'd see that on Breaking Bad or whatever. It's like, you know, a couple seasons and you're like, oh, wow, this has like, now it has a visual signature. And I feel like, I feel like Barry's is very apparent in a great way. I, I agree. And I really feel like they're giving uh, more time to Anthony. I think it's pronounced Kerrigan is his last name, who plays Noho Hank. And uh, amazing. He's so fun. He's so much such fun. A, it's like such he, a great, interesting actor. He's like a comedy grenade. It's like, you know, he enters the scene and you're like, I, I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. It, it's so much fun. It, but also like totally believable. Yeah. Like he doesn't come across as like a ridiculous farce of a person. Not at all. He comes he, like he, as he a feels, fully formed three dimensional yeah. human, which is uh, which is which no, is no. great. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. No. Like if there was a, a Chechen mafioso Angelino, it's like, you know, because that's what he is. He's he's completely an Angelino. And it's like you, you yeah. recognize, you know, the, the tropes of the transplant to L.A. from wherever you are and start to pick up the, you know, the entire like L.A. vibe and mannerisms. And uh, it, it it's so much fun. It's so much fun to watch. Great show. No, I look forward to it every week. I'm very excited about it. All right. So, Ben, where can people find you if they want to find you outside of this podcast? 
Well, this is the first time in a host rap that I've been able to say this with a, w- completely sincerely. Go to benrock.com. Woohoo! Benrock.com. <laughs> Amazing. It, it took it took a minute after How I many owned years? the domain. Well, I mean, it took me since the internet existed to get benrock.com, but even after I got the domain, um, just connecting it to my Squarespace account. I'm going to be up, updating oh, my Oh, I'm my on benrock.com right, right now, and I can see all of your stuff. I got your about page, your film work. How exciting is this? There you are at benrock.com. That's great. Yeah, yeah. for people who, uh, who haven't been listening uh, for a long time, benrock was a boat company that was bought out by another boat company that was eventually bought out by the Brunswick Corporation, which is the biggest boat company or one of the biggest boat companies. And a very nice, wonderful person at the Brunswick Corporation was nice enough to be like when I reached out to her, she was like, yeah, we can give you this. We're not using it. They hadn't used it in over a decade. There was nothing there. (laughs) And so for the cost of a domain transfer, I was able to get benrock.com literally for the first time since the Internet has existed. Well, well done, Brunswick. You, you, you made some people very, very happy here, and uh, and and now you're getting all kinds of, of I, praise. I don't suppose I'm ever going to buy a boat, but if I ever think about buying, it's a, a Brunswick. Boat, a thousand percent going to Brunswick Corporation. Uh, I did have to sign a contract saying that I wouldn't sell boats on this website. <laughs> uh, you know, they make a lot of different boat brands. I'm actually now on the Brunswick website. <laughs> they have a lot of brands of boats: Bayliner, Low, Quicksilver. <laughs> Oh my God, Harris! They, you have a lot of boats to choose from. So this whole conversation got you to the boat website. It sure did. I'm on Brunswick.com right now. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, no, no. I'm, I'm, anyway, so you can find me at Benrock.com, uh, and uh, you can also find all my socials on there and link to them if you want to say hello to me on whatever Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Let me know that you listen to the podcast. I love talking to people who listen to the podcast. You you love them. I know you do. I, I do. No, yeah. no. I mean, you're like making any- little heart emojis right now with your hands. It's like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at hot rod cameras, uh, HotRodCameras.com. Uh, sponsor of the show. Like the nice British lady says, when the host, you know, the very beginning, the moments of the show say it's the cinematography podcast sponsored by hot rod cameras. That's where you find me. I'm over at hot rod cameras. The website is hot If you want to talk to me, there's a phone number. You can actually pick up the phone. You can give us a call and, uh, there's a, fair chance that someone there or even myself might answer the phone and we can talk about cameras lights lenses all the stuff that we do studio build outs we building out studios so you know uh, we can we can talk all about that and any of those things if you're looking for gear give us a ring we can help absolutely uh, should, should we get the the british lady back to do a new voiceover one of these days do you think like when we when, when we have k's uh, refresh the music should we bring her back in or yeah, we could do that. I, I mean, I think she did a great job. Why not? Why not bring her back? Yeah, get the gang back together. Yeah, yeah. Let's do a whole new thing. So, Ilya, who should we thank uh, this week, as opposed to every other week? Let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody working tirelessly to, uh, you know, get the word out, book new interviews, you know, make it happen. Yeah, we had. I won't call it a crisis, but like we usually we we have a few interviews in in the tank at all times, and we ran out. They're all out. That's right. And then Alana like stepped on the gas, man. And then and we have a bunch in the tank again already. Well, uh, the thing was, is that uh, we have a bunch that are being held because their movies haven't come out yet. And we were trying to time it appropriately. Like yeah, every once in a while, you might notice that an interview comes out. And then the thing that the person is wants to talk about because it's a new movie or a TV show, it's not out yet. And then uh, you go, wow, I can't watch this thing that 
Ilya and Ben were talking about for so long. But uh, when Alana does her job, she will actually try to make sure that each of these episodes drop at the appropriate time. And you can then either go out immediately and see, you know, something from the people who we were talking to or uh, about to or, you know, something that's going to happen in like, in a, you know, in the inside of about a week. So uh, but we had a situation where we had a whole bunch of stuff in the can and none of their projects had come out. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So uh, let's also thank Ben Katz, who I'd say we've made his life medium difficult tonight. Not not the worst that we've ever done, but uh, definitely uh, a couple of moments. Ben Katz, who edits every episode masterfully, and I, I believe he has settled back in uh, Washington State somewhere. I think that's right, at least for the time being. He's in Washington. We miss you, Ben Katz, but hopefully we'll see you soon. And lastly, but not leastly, we should thank, as always, Kay's Alatracci, who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on the podcast. And if you need to hire anyone who does anything, I think it's fair to say Kay's can fill that. He is a director. He is, I'd say he's a pretty good cinematographer. He uh, is a composer, obviously, as we've said. He does CGI. He does color grading. He can fix the differential on your 2018 BMW, too. It's like he's incredible. He can just do anything. Not lying when I say this makes one motherfucker of a pizza. Oh, wow. Okay. And pizza. So yeah. not just a mechanic, but also a pizza. Yeah. Yeah. We, and we've been threatening to get him on the show and we actually tried. We tried last week. We really did try last week. And, it, but he, it, he was too busy. He, yeah. It, well, go figure. He's that like probably saving the world. He's like, you know, pulling a Thor Dude. or something. Yeah. It's being yeah, multi hyphenating his way through life. So that's about it. Yeah, I think that that wraps us up. Hey, uh, ben, I, I'm looking forward to next week. We got another great episode, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.